Are you willing to state one way or the other whether or not you're D.B. Cooper? Uh, I'm afraid of heights. You have uh, parachute training, and, and uh, you, as you mentioned yourself, your, your background suggests that you could have been D.B. Cooper. Could have been. Could have been. You don't want to commit yourself one way or the other? No, I, uh, I can't commit myself on something like that, Warren. It's, uh, like I say, uh, primarily I'm afraid of heights, and uh, there's a matter there, too. You, you say, well, would a story like that, should it be fiction or should it be fact? And it's primarily up to the uh, American people uh, someday how that comes out, if it's going to be a fictional story or a factual story. anybody look up the video on YouTube called I think it's Trump eviscerates Trump it's like a daily show clip where he, he's making fun of like Obama or something and then it switches to him doing the exact same thing oh he's it's yelling like, at himself yeah, basically yeah it's like three minutes long it's so funny that's really it's good. great it's fantastic do you know what I love Cody what's that uh I checked our email the other day and saw a couple of store orders from our new oh, website yeah. at bumblebuttpodcast.com beautiful website you can go there you can read about us you can listen to our promo most importantly you can buy merchandise and right now we have a shirt and some stickers up soon to be another shirt hopefully this week um yeah the order's in i'm hoping I don't know how busy the shirt shop is. Hopefully, it'll come this week. We'll put it up on there, and I'm glad this site works beautifully, honestly. Oh, God. It's without hiccup. Mobile as well. Yeah, I, I was a little worried about the store because I, I've never made a website before, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, the order comes in. I mail it out, and then... You know, I, I mark it complete, and that's it. It's fantastic. It's so easy. It's easy, and it's fun, and it's great, and it's uh, customer-friendly <laughs> as far as definitely. Go buy a shirt, definitely. That's I, what I'm saying. I would assume it looks a little more approachable doing an order on a website versus messaging back and forth on Instagram. It's just weird. Uh, yeah. It feels too personal. It it's like I kind of want I kind of want my business to be done separate. <laughs> it kind of reminds me I remember I had that uh Audi TT a long time ago, right? Mm. And I wanted to get these custom parts and I had to place an order through a guy basically through his pay- PayPal. Yes. I had to pay him then he mailed me the parts and it just like there's no like safety guard there, I guess. It felt really weird. And so. I'm sure he was like make sure you mark it friends and family yeah not goods and services so <laughs> yeah. that way we don't have to pay tax on it <laughs> but i guess he sent me the stuff so that was good it's all that matters. no problem yeah. there but uh but yeah we're gonna hopefully we'll have the new shirts up i'll put the uh inventory on there which that's probably the best part it keeps inventory for you which is 
fucking fantastic. I couldn't think of a better tool. <laughs> no. I mean, you... goddamn, I hate balancing any kind of books, and if a machine will do it for me, thank you. You know what's great, too, is uh, obviously we have the cats here. You have to keep that box sealed tight or yeah. those little shits will get in there yeah. immediately and we don't want that no we don't we, no. they don't need a new home all right they have so many places to sleep they don't need to sleep on our goddamn t-shirts mm, how how curious is your little guy very yeah uh Bastard. in everything right now it, th- at that age yeah yeah you notice how we, we obviously were recording our 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 pay or uh or bumble butt, or between the bumbles, <laughs> and that cat, my cat, yeah. has literally been sleeping all day, not doing anything. The second we started, the shit was tearing up the curtains and everything. I here. thought there was a poltergeist. Yeah. The curtains, every single one of the curtains was moving at once, and it was just her running so fast back and forth, dragging what? them. You had all day to do that. Why do yeah. you have to do that right now? Yep, because we're here. It. Yeah, I guess. Little attention whores is what they are. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Bumblebutt Podcast, the only podcast on the internet that uploads weekly. Who knows what it'll be about this week? It is the finale of D.B. Cooper, which Hell I'm yeah. pretty excited about. Hell yeah. Uh, my name is Adam. Sitting across from me, as ever, is Cody. Hello, Hello Adam. Was your week good? Uh, it was fantastic. 10 out of 10. 10, 10? Well, yeah. uh, give me one highlight. Give me the give me the 10 out of 10 highlight. It's an embarrassing highlight, but I, because the World of Warcraft expansion is coming out in a month, I took the plunge and now I'm back in that. You're back in that age. Well, H. I'm getting prepared for that. You know what's going to happen. I'm going to play maybe two, three weeks of the expansion, get everything done and be like, okay, this is boring and then quit playing again. Do you think you'll finish it? Do you think you'll go through it? They made it easy, haven't they? They've really streamlined the expansions. Yeah. You can get through them in a short amount of time. Yeah, well, there's a lot of time gates. They're uh, big on the time gates. They want to keep that $15 yeah. a you month know, coming. You know what I wanted to do was just replay Resident Evil 2, the remake, and try to get the unlockables, Ooh. which you have to beat the game in hour 20. Ooh. And the speed run, the best speedrunners in the world beat it in 48 minutes, so it's like... Jesus. God damn, they That's, expect you to be like yeah. a speedrun caliber yeah. player. I don't know if I can do I kept getting bitten and I'm like, fuck, this is hard. Ugh. Yeah, All right. But well, I, Cody, I want you to take me directly into DB Cooper slash Bob Rackstraw part three. Yeah, so I don't know if we want to call these corrections or additions. So I finally took the time to watch the actual documentary that correlates with the book, which from my what I've gathered after watching it is it's essentially the History Channel has questioned Tom Colbert and his little cold case team, which I didn't know Tom Colbert was actually, mo- all these people are mostly just journalists. Sure. I thought they actually, like, uh, had some sort of authoritative, you know, whatever, their okay. FBI or cops or whatever. Most of them are journalists, which is fine. I guess they get a lot of the work done anyway. As long as they're credited, that's all I meant. Or accredited, I should say, not credited. So as what, long as they're good journalists. So w- the most important thing was is that they're presenting their case that Bob Rackstraw is D.B. Cooper to two other people, one former FBI agent and this guy named Billy Jensen, which I'm going to talk about in its split second year. All right. So... They're basically trying to convince these two people that Bob Rackstraw could be D.B. Cooper. Of course, they're objectionists and all this. But I learned a few new facts that they didn't put in the book, and I don't know why they didn't put it in there. But 
First off, Billy Jensen, as I mentioned, he is what he calls himself a veteran crime journalist. This is air quotes here, okay? Now, I can tell he is very butthurt <laughs> that he did not crack this case, so he is trying to oppose literally everything that's said. Okay, yeah. You know exactly what I'm talking about, He's right? butt mad. Yeah, he, he would, if he cracked this, he'd be all about it, but because he didn't, and he can't make money off it. He's very upset. Hell yeah. He's trying to make money and counterproving it. Yeah, basically. The other thing I thought was interesting is apparently D.B. Cooper's literally the only unsolved plane hijacking in U.S. history. Wow. Only one on the books. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's weird. I, I thought there'd be more, but apparently... It's the only one. Fuck yeah, you'd expect you'd expect some of them to get away somewhere. Yeah, apparently not. They've Go to gotten a them all. Plain chop shop somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is is that uh, I found was interesting is the passengers on the plane when it was being hijacked. The reason when they kept circling around Seattle and not landing, they told the passengers they were just having engine trouble and they had to burn off excessive fuel. Okay. okay. And they even were like, hey. You guys can all come enjoy first class. I'm just like, damn, that is a hell of a lie why a man has a bomb in the back. That's, that's crazy. That's some cold thinking. That's cool. Yeah, cool that's, thinking. The other thing I thought was interesting. So we talked about he wanted to go from Seattle to Mexico. Now, at the time, I was thinking, okay, the plane technology probably couldn't make it there. But the real reason for that. Oh, they definitely could. Yeah, the real reason was apparently when he requested to put the plane down at 15 degrees, it then stalls the engines. You're you're technically putting the plane up because you're putting those flaps down and yeah. it turns your plane into a kite. And you're just like fighting against the jet stream and the air resistance to keep you slow. But in order to stay airborne, you got to crank up the yep. juice on your engine. I did not realize that. So that's where all the fuel's going. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. You you should technically only have your flaps down for landing and takeoff. That's that's really that's it. it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Did you okay? Did you learn all this from Flight Simulator? Of course I did. <laughs> of course I. I. You should see my airport. It's called or my uh, airline. It's called Cuck Air, and I have so many fucking A three twenties. I got so many seven eighty sevens, and I've got employees out the ass. I've got You're ninety balling. employees. That's You're right. balling then. Damn. Uh, the other uh, few things here. So you remember co-pilot Bill Radizak, right? Sure do. So he was talking about after they got everybody off and they took back off into the air. Now, D.B. Cooper claimed that he wanted to keep 10,000 feet in the air, right? According to Bill, he said because of the sea level, they were actually only about 5,000 feet off of the ground. Okay. So, so the altimeter was reading 10,000, but they were yeah. 5,000. Yeah. So I thought that was crazy. And according to Bill, because of the weather... Ice started forming around the the wings of the plane and over the, the the windshield and everything. So there was a chance if it froze over too much, they were going to nosedive. I thought that was oh. pretty crazy. Oh, 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 oh. So, and if you take that into the equation and then him jumping off the plane into that, that's crazy. That's, that had to be cold. That's what I'm saying. That's what a... Yeah. Can you imagine you're... Taking your family to Florida on a nice trip, and all of a sudden, there's just ice forming over the wings. 
get a little scary. And it, it, there are de-icing things yeah. that you're supposed to do. I wonder why they weren't doing it. In 1970? I'm pretty sure there was de-icing. Maybe not, though. Maybe not. Well, I think what he's, he's, he's saying is you cannot fly that low simply for that reason. <sighs> Absolutely, yeah. because of the condensation in the air, the mm-hmm. wet. Well, that is fucking. Yeah, so that that's crazy. And the the other thing he mentioned was they think where the jump location out of the plane is. Right, there is a place called Merlin Dam. Now they think DB might have you looked out of the plane while he's on the stairs, saw the lights from the Merlin Dam, and jumped out and said, "I gotta land there." Does that make sense? Yes. Like you can see the lights yes. from the sky. So he already had a landing zone kind of built out for him. I thought that was kind of interesting. That was his like yeah. visual checkpoint. Yeah, he's like, okay, I need to go to those lights. That's right. Make... Yeah, that's brilliant. Now, they mentioned something they called squidding, okay? <laughs> Not as gross <laughs> as it sounds. <laughs> when he requested the parachutes to jump out, apparently. Uh, during war times, or actually when they used to drop uh, air supplies, you would just have to open your parachute at the stairs, and it would suck you out. Uh huh. So it would have made him, or he would have known this technique for jumping out of a plane, essentially, if that makes sense. I think on the History Channel, I watched him do it with fucking Humvees. Really? Yeah. They like just, they just throw the parachute yeah. out the back and then put it in neutral, and it's just like. <laughs> What it what is interesting how I mentioned that nobody outside the military would have had known to do this unless they had been in one of these planes sure. before the squidding was like their technique. Sure. And the other thing was is that apparently CIA, the CIA was using those Boeing seven twenty sevens in something they called Air America. Okay, mm-hmm. they were the covert planes. They were pre- pretending to be civilian planes, but they were actually dropping supplies and stuff. Perfect. Yeah. So. Rackstraw would have, if he was involved, we mentioned the CIA, he probably would have had an idea of their secret Air America, whatever. Him and uh, his CIA pal that used to go off into the woods in the chopper with a tripod and a machine gun. So it would have made sense how he would have known all that. And the last thing is, uh, do you remember Gail Downing? She was, he gave her the shell necklace. Yes. Okay, so first... Because I went to to Hawaii, and I have all these cool things from Hawaii. Here's my necklace. Here's the weirdest thing. I don't know why they didn't put it in the book. Apparently, Gail was Fred Dross's ex-girlfriend, but she was still at the party the same night that he dumped her. Oh. That's why she was in love with Norman De Winter. (laughs) And even after all these years after she is... uh, They're interviewing her, she still clearly... Very infatuated. She holds them. a candle for yeah. for Baron de Winter. I, I literally put here Gail Downing W A P because <laughs> that's the first thing that came to my mind because she was just like, man, I love Norman de Winter. <laughs> it was uh, it was it was pretty funny watching her, and she's married to Dross now. They're a couple now. They okay. just broke up for that night. Apparently, I don't know. He did a heated night of uh, uh, mm. maybe you know maybe he wasn't giving her the time of day. Wasn't paying. Maybe. Didn't say her dress looked nice. Yeah, maybe I don't know. It was just very <laughs> weird. Wanted a couch surfing baron instead. <laughs> Who wouldn't though? <laughs> if I had a Swiss noble show up at my house, I'd be banging him yeah. instantly. Oh yeah, <laughs> Norman of Winter. Yeah, absolutely. That's clearly a real last name, right? <laughs> All right. Now picking up uh, where we left off. Bob Rackstraw 
had possibly not only tricked the entire town of a story pretending to be Baron Norman de Winter, also potentially successfully skyjacked Northwest Flight 305 under the alias of Dan Cooper. Now, if we believe he had committed the hijacking of the plane, it makes sense that Bob might lay low for a little bit, kind of keep himself out of trouble. I would. Apparently, during this time, Bob would do just random flying jobs for companies. Oh, he's playing flight sim. He's doing what (laughs) I'm doing every day. (laughs) Well, let's see if uh, you've done what he just did here. So, Bob, like I said, managed to stay out of the public eye at least until May 4th, 1973, when Bob had a little accident. Uh-oh. Now... <laughs> pooped his pants. <laughs> I for, I'm guessing he would have preferred to have pooped his pants. <laughs> Are you saying he pooped something very expensive's pants? <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> now, Bob had been hired to deliver a new Enstrom F-28 helicopter from or for San Jose Aviation Company, but it was coming fresh out of the factory in Michigan. Fuck yeah. So on the trip from Michigan to California, Bob was flying very low to the ground, much like much like he did in Vietnam, and while traveling over Iowa, Represent. all of a sudden his engine began to flame out. Now, brand new, a brand new helicopter, you wouldn't expect this to happen, right? Well, Bob had miscalculated the helicopter's fuel consumption. Oh, he ran her dry? Yeah. Oh. We'll find out why in a minute here. They eventually would crash into local farmer Jim Sweeney's field. You know him? (laughs) I wish I... (laughs) Sweeney. I know a lot of Sweeney's in Iowa, so maybe it is him. They didn't say, like, where he crashed, but in Iowa somewhere. Uh, Jim said, The fast two-seater came toward us at a low altitude. Then, when it got about 50 to 75 feet off the ground, it dropped like a potato straight down. It crashed just about 100 yards from my feedlot. Oh, you can't be crashing into some dude's feedlot. Fuck no. Dropping like a potato, I feel like it's a very Iowa thing right there. (laughs) Now, in typical Iowa paranoid farmer fashion, Jim assumed the two gentlemen had to be... Airborne cattle rustlers. <laughs> Apparently, they're under attack from airborne cattle rustlers. I've never seen them myself. Oh, I see them all the time. I guess that's a thing. They it's... drop down chains and pick up cows and fucking fly away. <sighs> Come on, dude. That's not going to happen. His sons, though, <laughs> assumed that they were both drug runners. Poor small town Iowa yeah. boys. Hoping these, that it's we got these dopers flying overhead. They crashed into our field here. It's fucking Miami Vice dopers. <laughs> After this, obviously the area would be swarmed by cops and feds. And you could about imagine for someone who might have been DB Cooper, this got Bob sweating a little. But they would just assume the two idiots had simply cl- uh, crashed the helicopter. Eventually, the FAA filed this report about the crash. Lack of familiarity with the aircraft, mismanagement of fuel, misjudged speed and altitude. He thought helicopter had three-hour range. Manufacturing guidelines state fuel range for crews was approximately two hours. You gotta read the hand and the manual, dude. Uh, I just, I wonder if he was still thinking he was in his Vietnam chopper. He <laughs> forgot that maybe they, they had gotten... A, they have a three-hour range, maybe. Ugh. I mean... I don't know. Wouldn't they, like, warn him beforehand, you think? Like, don't drive this more than two hours? I would hope so. Yes, coming from the manufacturer. Maybe they just assumed he knew. Maybe. I don't know. Now, while this would cause the FAA to temporarily suspend Bob's license, 
As we're about to find out, Bob doesn't give two shits about all that. Sure. After the helicopter crash, Bob would get a job being the manager of Radio Shack. Oh, he put him out of business, too. <laughs> Probably did. <laughs> After his shift one day, he stopped by the local Red Roof Inn for a drink. Wow. <laughs> he then befriended a cute blonde waitress by the name of Linda McGarity. I like that name. It's classy. Yeah. Who is a 25-year-old divorced mom from Houston with two children. Linda would later say, His eyes and mine met, and it was boom. So he started taking me out and learned I had a house by myself. I'd only had it six months when my ex-husband said he wanted to go be a big rock star. <sighs> Feels like a very 70s thing. I'm joining a rat band, or I'm joining a rat. I'm going to be a big baby. Did did uh, we don't find out who her no. ex-husband? No. Okay. He just, he's probably just like Druid. He just played a local show. He said, I'm going to make it big. Released a dope-ass CD. Yeah. Like a fucking baller hard CD. <laughs> and then just gave up. We should Almost ask- like- Somebody else. We should. I'm. We should ask Jordan if we could buy all of the Druid. Uh, what is it? Merch. Merch and the rights to his the songs. We should. We'll distribute them. Definitely. Now, as their love blossomed, Bob would eventually move in with Linda and her kids, uh, and they started referring to him as quote Daddy Bob. I kind of have a little problem with anybody calling anybody Daddy or Daddy <laughs> Daddy name, especially. Well, maybe not even for a stepfather. Like, I don't know how old the kids are. If they're old enough to talk, I would assume calling him Daddy Bob. A little awkward there. That's strange. Now, Linda said he was just so sweet and a loving person. He loved my kids. He adored me. <laughs> I'd never had that in my life. It was like, here's your Prince Charming. And she's 25 yeah. with two, two kids. kids and divorce. It's like, man, you're so young. You have no idea what you're worth, probably. Okay, so he would be 20, or no, he'd be probably 30 at this point. Mm. So, you know what? I guess he swooned her or whatever. Now He's got that, uh, not only does he have stability, but he has a history of protecting like with the military service and all that stuff well this just goes to show how much pussy uh radio shack managers used to get oh i didn't think about yeah. that's probably how he did it definitely. yeah the they, radio that shack. was the cutting edge of electronics back oh, then 73 yeah. uh, here yeah oh my god yeah now not long after linda and bob uh started living together Bob just so happened to run into one of his old paratrooper buddies from Vietnam uh, named Mike Naro. Now, Mike just so happened to be running a chemical-slash-flooring company called Specialty Surfacing. The business would essentially install military ship decks, gym floors, and tennis courts, also basketball courts. Uh, Seeing as Bob didn't feel like Radio Shack was his calling in life... (laughs) He would accept a job working for Mike. So these guys are building like those puzzle piece floors. For yeah, ba- that's yeah. awesome. Apparently, you know, I didn't know those were removable until Herschel told me the whole thing. Yeah, because I was like, how do the Clippers and Lakers play at the? Do they have to like erase the mm. uh, uh, paint and paint it with the Clippers in between every game? He's like, no, you idiot. They just take the floor up and put in the other floor. I mean, that still sounds like a lot of fucking work. Hell yeah. I mean, I guess they do that in football fields, right? Repaint them? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I I assume it's a little easier on a football field. Yeah, to do that. You'd assume, yeah. 
than than it would be to uh, take an entire floor up and put an entire floor back down. Now, it seems like they did this mostly for, I assume, either military contracts or schools. Sure, or, or bases and stuff. Yeah, or like personal homes. If you're rich enough to have a tennis court or a basketball court, oh. one day we'll get there. Yeah. Now, with accepting this job, Bob is about to meet... Two more important characters that will join him in some of his future criminal activities. Robert C. Pudgy Hunt and <laughs> John Richard Dick Briggs. Mm-hmm. Briggs was a former U of O frat boy and was now a bodybuilder living out of Portland. Awesome. Uh, Pudgy said this about Dick Briggs. A lot of people confuse him. <laughs> he bench pressed 425 pounds. <laughs> they called him Bugsy, like the 1930s gangster, because he was a little squirrely. <laughs> he uh, he looks like a. He kind of does look like a Dick Tracy villain. Oh, not gonna lie. Okay. He, uh, he, uh, he's he's a square of a man. Yeah, but. In his later photos, he looks like he's straight out of Miami Vice. So <laughs> Now, the thing about Dick is he might actually be legitimately crazy. His personality could switch in an instant, and he was known for being a violent drunk. Pudgy's wife later said this about when she fir- first met Dick Briggs. One of our first dates was at Pudgy's unfinished apartment. <laughs> There's a knock at the apartment door. And in walks this just gigantically muscular man. Short, stocky, very dynamic. Looked dangerous beyond belief. (laughs) My husband is just totally engaged with him. And he says, okay, Dick, you want a drink? Dick does a straight shot of bourbon and immediately proceeds to eat the glass. Blood is dripping down his face. He's chewing the glass. My husband yells at him. My God, Dick, that was my one and only glass. And Dick begins to cry. His emotional well-being was really questionable at the time. Oh, see how unstable that man is. He, 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 did he think they would be proud of him for eating the glass? And then he was like, hey, I only got one. The rest of them are from the Metrodome. I, uh, well, I'm not saying this is everybody, but his him becoming a bodybuilder, I think, might have been a compensation for him. Obviously, him eating the glass is his way of proving that he's like a macho man. Hmm. And, yeah, I don't know, like, I can't really include everything, but, like, he would literally, like, throw people in the car windows, he was just, he was nuts, he was one of those guys, he was insane. Just flew off at random moments. You wasted and just fucking go nuts. Now, like I said, unfortunately, I don't have time to go into everything involving Dick Briggs, but Bob and Briggs would get into a lot of antics, mostly involving Bob convincing Briggs to do something There's a little fucking devil in his ear just yapping away. But Briggs is going to become very important later on. Now, in typical Bob fashion, in the spring of 1974, somehow Bob had made an arrangement with Sheriff Russell Leach of San Jose, California. The agreement was to allow Bob to have the county's keys to a brand new Bell 47G helicopter and if you're wondering what this looks like, think of the helicopter from MASH. Oh. It's that one. Now, the deal was that Bob could use it, but he had to be a volunteer officer and would have to be the pilot during search and rescue missions. Wow. 
Now, eventually, Bob was not only taking his new girl, Linda, out on romantic flights, but he would apparently fly it into Stockton and begin to wave his badge around uh, when he got picked up for drunk driving what? in a car, okay, in okay, a car, yeah, yeah, in a yeah. car. He told the cops who pulled him over he was actually the sheriff's deputy in Calva- Calveras County to avoid any trouble, okay? Uh, he's just a volunteer, by yeah, the way. So. Yeah. And they only want him because he's the only one that can fly the helicopter. Yeah, basically. This is going to bite him in the ass in just a second <sighs> Well, here. good. Now, the antics of Bob Rackstraw eventually wore thin with Sheriff Leach, and he pulled Bob's badge. But Sheriff Leach couldn't retake the county's helicopter because it listed Bob Rackstraw as the owner. <laughs> so the cops couldn't repossess their own no. helicopter. <laughs> no, so you just got to keep it. What the fuck? <laughs> Fucking idiots. Are they still making payments on that thing? Because that's I would, amazing. I, I don't know. How can Ooh. you be that stupid? Ooh. How can you be that stupid? I don't know. That is dumb. Now, another interesting event that happened with Bob was when he and Linda took a little trip to Lake Tahoe in Bob's Cessna plane, potentially the exact same plane Bob used to make a getaway after the hijacking. Mm-hmm. According to Linda, Bob had convinced the hotel that he was a big rock star coming in from New York. Wow. So as you can imagine, the hotel treated Bob as a celebrity, and Linda just played along with it the entire time. That's uh, Dick Briggs' uh, ex's ex-wife no 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 linda is linda is linda mcgarrity or mcgarrity oh yeah linda mcgarrity's ex-husband i mean no 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 dick briggs is just his work partner i'm so okay that's fine don't worry about it don't worry linda and bob are together they met at the red roof inn that's That's all you need to know gotcha gotcha but she loves the lifestyle that bob is showing her here rough raw yeah Now, during this time, Bob appears to have been making quite a bit of money, whether it was simply because of his job with uh, specialty surfacing or if he was involved in something else. We don't really know. I kind of think he was involved in something else. Once we progress the story, you'll kind of question that as well. Okay. Uh, But what we do know is that they were living in an extremely nice house in Cupertino. Oh, that's where Apple was invented. Is it really? Yeah. If every time you buy an Apple device, the time is set to Cupertino time. Really? Mm-hmm. So it's obviously a very expensive area to live. <sighs> and as no surprise, uh, he owned a Corvette as well. Uh, not even midlife yet. No. And as we will find out, um, he might have not actually paid for it. Did the sheriffs need a new Corvette and put it in his fucking name for some reason? We'll get to how he starts to acquire cars <laughs> in a moment here. Oh, we got a real Jay Leno on our hands. Now, to add another layer of intrigue to the life of Bob Rackstraw, another time in 1974, Bob, Pudgy, and Dick Briggs were working a job at the Rod Laver Racket Club. I think he's a famous... Tennis player, by the way. Okay. Uh, which was atop a 10-story structure near LAX. Damn. Now, after the boys had finished the job, Bob took them up to the ninth floor club bar for drinks and play a little foosball. Hell yeah. While this doesn't seem weird at first glance, the thing that was weird was that this place was packed with celebrities and the specialty surfacing workers kind of stood out like a sore thumb. They're all stinky and sweaty from <laughs> building a tennis there. court in a te- in a goddamn L.A. sun. Now listen to this. 
Somehow Bob was able to convince Charlton Heston to agree to join them in a game of foosball. <sighs> in fact, Pudgy would later snap a picture of them drinking with Charlton Heston that would eventually hang in Pudgy's bar for over 30 years. I saw this picture as well. It is crazy. That's amazing. Why is he hanging out with Bob Rackstraw and the crew here? Because Bob's got the confidence to make that shit happen. Listen to this now. Bob's not quite done. Somehow Bob had managed to get a membership to the Los Angeles Playboy Club located in Century City. Now, Pudgy would later recall them all walking up to the front door. The bouncer asked his name. He simply said Bob Rackstraw, and he let them all <laughs> right in. We, we don't know how the fuck he managed to get a membership here, but somehow he was connected to all the... Famous people that used to go there. I We don't know how. That's insane. Is how? He, is he doing like air courier drug for famous that, people or what? It's kind of what I think, yeah. honestly. I think, he, I think he was involved in something there, and well, that'll make sense later on. Okay. Uh, now, in April of 1974, Bob would open a one-hanger air taxi service at the Palo Alto Airport, which stored a Hughes 500 helicopter, which... I think is a civilian version of a Loach surveillance helicopter. Okay. And his trusty Cessna plane. Now, the interesting thing was that while he would tell everybody these were his aircrafts, the FAA never had a single record of him owning a single <laughs> aircraft, which probably means he stole them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? <clears throat> or fucking Han Solo'd them. We're like, got, yeah. got it, won them in a game of cards or something. He beat someone at foosball and just got him there. <laughs> now, most of the time, this air taxi service just involved Bob taking golfers and celebrities to Pebble Beach. It, oh. Literally all he did there. So that's not a bad racket. That's awesome. Now, while Linda loved every aspect of Bob and thought of him as a loving boyfriend who treated her well, she never seemed to question his antics, at least until one time she found a locked briefcase. Linda eventually located a little key in his underwear section of his dresser. Now, when she opened it, it was full of business cards, paperwork, a toupee, a tape-on mustache, and all <laughs> sorts of things needed basically for a con man to make a disguise, right? Sure, sure. When Linda asked him about it, his excuse was he needed the toupee to conceal his baldness during important meetings. Sure. Not a single other word was asked about him. Even though Linda probably had to know something was a little funny about Bob. She had the rock star thing, his planes, his businesses, all of this disguise stuff. She still agreed to marry him on May 24th, 1974. Uh, and their reception was even held at the Red Roof Inn where they first met. Wow. That is romance right wow. there. That is romance. Have you driven past a Red Roof Inn ever? I thought they went out of business. Ah, we got a couple around here, I'm pretty sure. I know there's one in Woodbury. That's the one I'm thinking because of then. I, from being a little Iowa boy, hmm. I remember seeing the commercials, and I always thought they had the glass roofs. Oh. For when you're sleeping, they had the gra glass roofs. I thought oh. that was all of them, but apparently that's a lie. Yeah, that's just a shitty <laughs> chain hotel. Uh, have you ever stayed at a double tree? Those are actually pretty no, I have nice. not. I'm always the uh, what are we here? Uh, Hilton, yeah, soup. I did not super, not that low. Uh, which one am I missing? Holiday Inn, Holiday Inn, 
La Quinta. If La Quinta. You use, uh, yeah. I'm always those basic bitch hotels right there. Me too. So, they get yeah. the job done. I just need somewhere to rest my head before <laughs> I go where I'm going. You've stayed at a Red Roof Inn, though. Yes. Do they have a good bar? Uh, actually, I don't know. I actually don't. I was too young. Mm. I was too young to enjoy. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Now, Bob Rackstraw, around the same time, opened up another business called Fargo Graphics and Printing. As no surprise, none of the local banks would give him a loan, <laughs> mostly because he didn't have a single shred of experience in that particular field. <laughs> sure. Like, uh, sure, you want to go printing. Why not? You've never done it before. Here's I... a bunch of money. So allegedly, the story goes that Bob had managed to convince the father of the babysitter of Linda's kids to invest most of his retirement money in the business. He also, without Linda knowing, put her home up against the loan oh, as you well. piece of shit. Ooh. You know, this is why it's good that you have to be present for loans now. You can't just sign someone's name. Yeah. Yeah. I guess he's uh, they're married now, so I guess he can kind of do that, right? Actually, yes. He's yeah. half owner of the home now. Now, while it sounds like Bob is killing it with all the money he's making from specialty surfacing and his two businesses and whatever else he's doing on the side, it seems that Bob was just not simply satisfied with the mundane, mundane life of being financially stable. Mm. Apparently, Bob just couldn't avoid causing some sort of trouble. Now, because specialty surfacing was always sending him around the country for jobs, Bob found a unique opportunity that appeared in front of him. Now, remember the Corvette he owned, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like he started to steal cars from wherever he was working at, and then he would just bring them home, acting like he had just bought them. (laughs) His, His wife, Linda, said... We would always get, like, one-year-old cars, Cadillacs, Trans Ams. <laughs> Every six months, we'd get a new one. Bob's killing him, man. Always oh, getting new cars. What an asshole. Now, Bob's answer when Linda asked about him always getting these new cars would include... Oh, this buddy from L.A. wants me to drop this car. <laughs> or... Oh, the window's not going up. I'm going to go trade it in. Yeah, see, you gotta... Those are clearly reasons to get new cars, right? There was another event that transpired when Bob and another worker arrived in Evansville, Indiana to do a job. There was a lone union person picketing outside of the job site because they were working at a non-union site. Fucking scabs. <laughs> Bob informed his coworker to drive slowly by the picketer. When they got close, Bob swung the door open and slammed it into the man, which caused him to fall down into the ditch. Bob then jumped out of the car with a handgun and pointed the gun directly at the man's head and said, If you ever come back to this fucking job again, I'll blow your head off. Ooh, that doesn't sound like something a normal person would do. It's the 70s. I mean, (laughs) these goddamn union guys, they hate them, but I like them. I support the union. Yeah, absolutely support the union. Mm. Now, later on that same day, the union boss with two muscle boys showed up on the scene. But Bob, again, being a professional bullshitter, simply pulled out a bottle of whiskey, got the union boys drunk, told them war stories, and even challenged one of the bodyguards to an arm wrestling contest. Wow. He knew that guy was a arm wrestling champion, so he challenged him wow. just to flex his ego. Very what, smart. What a con artist. <laughs> I mean, that's some mind game shit. Yeah. Well, they he was expecting to get the shit beat out of Hell, him. Yes, as he should have. He turned it on him. 
who was not long after this when Bob started to sour his relationship with specialty surfacing. Not because of the event with the Union Boys. Not because they were fully aware he was stealing cars. <laughs> the boss literally would call and say, do not let Bob steal a car. He just kept stealing cars. <laughs> That's a hell of a boss. You don't wow. get fired for stealing cars. Wow. And not because his drinking was getting out of control. There's one story I'm going to tell you real quick. It was Bob and the co-worker that was with him with the union incident. Apparently, they were shit-faced. Bob threw the liquor bottle through the TV in the hotel, right? <laughs> he got that angry. And the next morning, he cut the rug with a knife and pushed the TV on top of it and told the hotel staff that the TV had just fallen off. Oh. They covered everything and gave him, I think, free tickets to a Knicks game. Oh, my God. As, a, <laughs> as an in yeah. Sorry for the inconvenience. Yeah. After he threw his bottle through the fucking hotel window or the TV screen. And then cut the carpet, yeah. too. Like, you, well, you dick. They gave him two tickets to a Knicks game. Awesome. How nice of him. Awesome. How nice of him. Now, the reason they were starting to sour is because they received a call from the FBI because they suspected that Bob Rackstraw was responsible for a big-time robbery. On February 18, 1975, someone driving a green pickup had broken into the Felton Quarry in Scotts Valley, California. To a rock quarry? Yeah. Let's hear what they stole. 22 cases of dynamite. Oh! Two... 100,000 uh, foot spools of primer core <laughs> and a shit ton of blasting caps. Oh, yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. An ATF agent said this later. Someone who knew what they were doing put just enough explosive around the door lock to blow it off and not the explosives inside. I imagine it was an ex-military explosives type who maybe got in with them. Yeah, you would need that demolitions experience to pull this shit off. He basically, like, deck corded the door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God, that is so much explosives. Jesus, 22 cases of dynamite. Yeah, oof. They suspected whoever stole these items turned around and sold them to a militant group cell who called themselves the New World Liberation Front. NWLF. <laughs> who was responsible for 16 bombings in the San Francisco Bay Area. Wow. Bay Area. Now, remember in part one, or part two, I guess, I mentioned the Bank of America bombings. Right, I do I believe remember. this is them as well. But what they're most known for was the bombing of six Pacific gas and electric power line towers on March 20th, 1975. It was like a coordinated attack or what? Yeah. Wow. Uh, they are anti-capitalists, obviously. So <sighs> not when we hear Liberation Front now, we think of white power guys. Yeah. I think this was an anti-capitalist Okay, so, yes, I was kind of thinking they were Nazis. No, I, they just don't like the government. Now, when the police raided the militant group's home base, they found four live bombs and 150 pounds of explosives that were directly connected to the explosives taken from the Felton Quarry. All right, all right. Now, the reason they connect Bob to this is because the people in the group talked about a ex-Vietnam vet with a bullet wound. Apparently, he showed him his bullet wound and all of this, and he, he wouldn't shut up about his war stories, and they kind of identified his uh, profile, so they're pretty sure it was him. Which and, sounds like Bob, who will not shut the fuck up about his war stories. Yeah, yeah, and uh, when he gets arrested later on, he has the explosives on him. 
some of the shit that was taken from here. So from the quarry, yes, <laughs> he did it. <laughs> Obviously, he did it. Now, although Bob would still do some jobs for specialty surfacing, he decided to start his own business to perhaps undermine specialty surfacing without actually stealing their type of work. He called it American Construction Team. That's boss. Which also went under the name Bahama Pools. Hell yeah. <laughs> he listed that the company specialized in general engineering, earthwork and paving, solar build or solder solar building, pool design and concrete work. So he's got he does a lot of shit here. Solar in the 70s. Apparently. Apparently. While Bob starting his own construction company sounds great, Unfortunately, on July 1st, 1976, Bob's company, Fargo Graphics and Printing, went under. Uh, see you later, what, uh, mother, father-in-law's yeah. life savings and retirement money. Linda and the babysitter's da- uh, dad lost the properties. Yep. See ya. God I'm, damn He didn't you, lose his, though? Well, he was living at that house, so he has to move out, oh, too. Oh, you dumb cuck. <laughs> He also, his aviation company in Palo Alto also went under and he was forced to sell the two aircrafts. That he never owned. Yeah, that he never owned. But he kept the Sheriff's Bell helicopter that he used to then transport his wife and two kids and move them to Valley Springs where Bob's parents lived. And eventually Bob, Linda, and the kids would move into a hilltop rental home. He is, he thinks they're still in fucking Saigon. He's like, get on the fucking (laughs) Huey. We got to get out of here. This LZ's hot. We got to get out of here. Get in the plane, Linda. God damn it. You have two minutes. I'll leave without you. <laughs> it's crazy. He still has that fucking helicopter. That's so awesome. He's got the fucking MASH combat medic <laughs> chopper. He literally has his own little MASH event going on. Everything's falling apart. He's like, let's get out of here. Yep. Now, although his wife, Linda, was pissed, she still tried to just go along with Bob and his adventures. At least until sometime in December of 1975. Bob Rackstraw was rarely home at this point, and Linda had no idea where he went or what he was actually supposed to be working on. (laughs) Eventually, Bob's mother, Lucille, a devout Jehovah's Witness, found out about her son's infidelities and decided to give Linda McGarity a mysterious post office box. Naturally, Linda opened it up. And found a little surprise. Linda said this later. There were two letters. One from a lady in New York and the other from one in California. Well, I got in my car because it didn't say my name on it. (laughs) Didn't say Mr. and Mrs. Rackstraw. Just him. I proceeded to open the one from New York and I freaked out. It stated, you're going to leave Linda, aren't you? I've been waiting long enough. I just kept reading the letter over and over. Tears flowing from everywhere. And I'm trying to drive. I went to his mom's house and showed her the letters. She said, kick his ass out tonight. (laughs) I would assume when you said, when it said, you're going to leave Linda, aren't you? I would assume that's pretty obvious what's going on here. Sign sealed delivered. (laughs) I I don't think there's any wiggle room from interpretation. You ready to hear Bob's uh, con man response here when Linda asked him about it? He said this. You're too good a person for me. Look. Something's coming down, and I don't think you need to be here. That's the uh, the sad boy gaslight yeah, response. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's my fault, babe. You're so good. Yep. It's it's you. It's my fault. Yeah, obviously it's your fault, but you're still an asshole. Yes, and I can't feel pity for you when you're an asshole. Oh, this is even cringier, honestly. 
with Bob's parents' help packing up, Linda moved back to Texas with her kids. Apparently, goddamn. Apparently, the divorce papers made it from Bob before she even arrived in Texas. Wow. Yeah, he was like, "Okay, you found I'm cheating. Here's the divorce papers. There you go." Now, Bob's secret lover was 28-year-old Mary Yontel. It's not her real name, by the way. Okay. And she was just waiting for him after oh, after they... Linda left in San Jose, and they would marry shortly after I that. See it. Yeah. Now, Mary would later say, He was a young man that had a difficult life like I'd had. My stepfather shot and killed my mother in domestic violence, and I know how it affected Bob when this very abusive man came into his mother's life. He's speaking about Philip, who had never once harmed Lucille, Bob, or Linda Lee. So he's lying to Mary in relating himself to her tragic uh, childhood event there. This guy is... He's an asshole. This guy's a gaslight king. Yeah, he is a asshole. Like, there, there's big sections of the book that I didn't include that Bo- or, um, Philip wouldn't even spank his kids in the 60s. Sure. Wouldn't touch him at all. And Bob's saying that he's this abusive asshole. It's fucked up. Also, Bob was cheating on Mary the entire time. I mean, that should be no surprise. In fact, one time Bob's co-worker at the time remembers when they had to go on a job assignment in Hawaii. He later said, I sat on the beach with Bob smoking tie sticks until we couldn't even stand. <laughs> then there was a night Rackstraw paid for two prostitutes in a bar. I'd never done that before. I knew he had a wife. Obviously, he had an interesting view on marriage. I would say so. What the fuck is a tie stick? Is that just weed? I don't know what a tie stick <laughs> is. You uh, you continue okay, on and I'll do a You email. find out what a tie... Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, with Bob focusing on his new construction company, because his father, Philip, made a living as a bulldozer operator, he decided to become partners with Philip in a new construction company named... 3R Engineering Contractors. Mm. The three R's stood for Rackstraw's Rattlesnake Ranch. Oh, they're Stone Cold Steve Austin. I guess. Yeah. Just <laughs> Stone Cold Stunners going around everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, a lot of the first jobs the company would take in were from clients that Phil had garnered over multiple years. Of course, this wasn't important to Bob. He didn't care about their relationships. No. You, when you have devoted long-term Fans, clients, whatever, you gotta, you know, treat them well. Bob just doesn't care. Yeah. Philip, uh, breaking from the news desk. Let's do it. A tie stick is, in fact, an ancient form of a blunt, a cigar like substance with okay. marijuana inside. Okay. All right. Well, I guess they like to party. Hell yeah. <laughs> now, Philip, being a man of integrity, he started hearing complaints from customers that Bob was doing inferior work. He was deceiving them. And most of the time, he wasn't even completing his contractual agreements. Things like this upset Philip very greatly. Oh, yeah. By December of 1976, Bob and Philip's relationship really started to sour. Bob's explosive temper started to get even worse, and Philip started to drink very heavily because his wife Lucille was dying of breast cancer. Now, Philip and Bob were using Linda Lee as an intermediary to go between them. And Philip needed Bob to help him get the accounting aspect of the business in order. Lucille was able to do the accounting side of Philip's business, Philip and Bob's business forever. 
but because she had cancer now, she was too sick to do it. What now, a quagmire. Well, this is a this is a terrible storm. Oh, absolutely. Sadly, after only six months of receiving her diagnosis, Lucille Rackstraw would pass away at the age of uh, 55 due to breast cancer. Too young. Said. Absolutely too young. Now, the accounting thing. Let me tell you what Bob, why Bob was hiding that aspect from Philip. Well, that's because Bob was writing bad checks in the amount of about $75,000. In 1975. Yes. So Philip didn't know that, and Bob was fucking him over really bad. Oh, he's fucking bouncing checks all over town. Yeah, it's about to get a lot worse here in a minute. Now, it seems to be because Philip and Bob were fighting about the aspects of the business, and the fact that Bob and Linda Lee had found out that Philip had been courting a woman from san diego prior to his the death of his wife i don't know about that probably not the nicest thing to do here uh is it bullshit though no 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 okay. no, no, no. He, okay. he marries her like okay or like the, he he moves in with her or something like or she moves with him like right after she dies they have said some pretty heinous shit about philip that yeah. is definitely not true but uh i don't know i don't know i mean he's in a He's in a downward spiral. His the love of his life is dying. He's drinking. His son is destroying his business. I just like, man, you gotta Maybe you gotta find solace in the arms of uh, another woman. I mean, we don't really know if Lucille was okay with it, I guess. Maybe she's like, I'm dying, you should find another wife or something. Yeah. But I I, I it's fucked. Kind that's of fucked messy. Up. I don't want to cast judgment, but that's no. that's a messy fucking whole situation. Preferably don't do that unless you and your spouse have an agreement. Let's say that. Yeah. I'll 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 cut I'll cut I'll cotton to that. No no, like Adam said, this is a bad storm brewing. And because of that storm, this might explain what happened next. Sometime after the death of Lucille, Philip just mysteriously disappeared. The last time he was seen alive was on July 25th, 1977. Man. Bob was telling his sister, Linda Lee, that Philip had just went to Hawaii to sort himself out. But this would have been exceedingly unusual for Philip to do. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest reasons why this was so weird was that Philip lived on a 10-acre ranch that had chickens and had two dogs that he treated like his own children. He loved these fucking dogs. Yep. And it would be very unlikely he would just ab abandon them and not tell a single soul and not even ask somebody, hey, can you tend to my ranch while I'm gone? Very strange. That's not a thing. No. Going to Hawaii is... Uh, uh, to just sort yourself out. Yeah, that's... Uh, if some if anybody just goes to Hawaii, they're dead. They're dead now. <laughs> well, the thing is, I guess if you are depressed and a severe alcoholic like Philip might have been, maybe you do it, but... Listen, Philip had a ranch with chickens. That mm. guy ate uh, pork chops and mashed potatoes every night. He's not trying to introduce pineapple into the equation. No, he's not he, going to Hawaii out of fucking nowhere. To he's sort the greatest generation. He's yeah. a POW survivor. He's not going to just take no. off for Hawaii. Yeah. While the police were just believing the fact that Philip had just gone to Hawaii, Linda Lee hired a private investigator to look into it. Now, the PI would eventually go to Hawaii for himself and, of course, <laughs> could find zero sign that philip was there uh, i need two weeks for this investigation uh, all <laughs> expense paid <laughs> it, that's kind of what he did to be honest Hell, with you. that's what i would do are you fucking kidding me i'll slow roll my way into a vacation 
But the most intriguing thing the PI found was when he was surveying Philip's ranch, he took notice that Philip's oldest dog, Bingo, was circling around a red shed near the garage, whimpering. Doesn't really take a genius to figure out what that means. Daddy's daddy's below the shed. Yeah, he can. I'm sure he can smell them, right? Yeah. The PI would also interview a local neighbor about what he had witnessed or heard around the time of Philip's disappearance. The PI said, Bob Rackstraw had been observed cleaning the stepdad's trailer himself one night, around the time Philip had disappeared. Also would recall a loud shouting match between Philip and Bob at about the same time. If you're thinking of, like, obvious murders here, that is about the most obvious murder comment I've ever heard in my life there. Like, uh, that, yeah. those always happen in murder cases. Without without actual video recording of yeah. it, this is as <laughs> yeah. close as you're going to get. Now, it will be a little bit before they actually find out what happened to Philip, but Bob seems like he just couldn't keep himself from staying out of trouble. Now, Bob had attempted to mail bomb components to a friend in San Antonio. God damn. He mailed the dynamite, primer cord, and the blast caps all separate so they didn't go off, apparently. But because Bob was a scribbler, one of the packages could not get delivered. Also, considering they found out that the return address was made up, they decided to open it, which caused them to launch an investigation. Well, I'm thinking he did them all separate because together that's probably a Dude, huge looked... felony. Oh, probably that could an act be. of terrorism to mail a bomb through the mail. My, my understanding is the dynamite and the primer cord got there safely, but the blast caps was the one that they opened up. So that's a very important part of the puzzle. <laughs> yeah. Now, around the same time, I'd assume to get into Linda Lee's good graces because her dad's missing, <laughs> Bob showed up with a $12,000 cashier's check. <laughs> he said to Linda, I'm going up north to do this big job. I got a nice big advance. Invest it wisely. <sighs> but when she went to cash it, she found out that Bob's cashier's checks had been bouncing at multiple banks. This guy's got a fucking Super Bowl in his pocket and it's called a checkbook. <laughs> well... The thing that they describe is effectively what he was doing was writing checks at like three different banks and he would do it in a certain pattern where he could get the money before bank three caught that bank one and two were transferring funds or something like that. Perfect. You're just playing with yeah. playing with the uh, bank's money, basically, yeah. tripling it up. This is why you have seven-day holds on your checks now because of assholes like this guy. Yep, yep. And, uh, and fucking... I know you played the check game, didn't you? Uh, well, yeah, but that I didn't. I, yeah, I'm not I saying at this level, but everybody no. I'm pretty sure everybody did. That was one of the advantages of the check based system. Sometimes you could Give literally write days. You could literally write a check your ass couldn't cash. Yeah, yeah, yeah basically. <laughs> also, Bob Rackstraw had set up a deal to sell Philip and Lucille's 10 acre property, which included a mobile home the two-car garage, and a work shed to Kelly Dean and uh, Diana Lynn Klein. Now, this was right after uh, Philip disappeared and right after his mother died as God, well. God damn. <sighs> after all this, Bob and Mary seemed to disappear themselves. At first, it was believed that they had went to Hawaii, <laughs> uh, but the P.I. would later find out Rackstraw's casual drinking buddies had recalled that Bob had recently talked about career opportunities in the Middle East regarding the operation of helicopters. 
I did a little checking and sure enough discovered that Bell Helicopter was the only major concern of this type in the Middle East. And they were operating in Iran. I shared the information with my sources. Yes, Bob and Mary had moved to Esfahan, Iran to work with <laughs> Bell Helicopter International Security Department. Wow. Yikes. Uh, Mary said this about moving to Iran. Our Iranian friends, they were wearing jeans trying to make us American hamburgers. <laughs> when we went out, we were just told, there are areas not to go. They were anti-American. At that time, I didn't really see this coming. <laughs> yeah, yes. I would say they, there's a few pockets that might be anti-American there. Uh, a short jaunt to Iran, I don't think you can see that coming. <laughs> now, the FBI would eventually contact Bell Helicopters, telling them all about Robert Rackstraw, which led Bell Helicopters to fire Bob, which would force him to leave Iran immediately. For fear of your own life. Yeah. Now... When Bob and Mary got on their return flight to the U.S., they landed, or they had a landover in Paris. A bunch of FBI agents then jumped on the plane to escort Bob home. Damn. And the second they landed in JFK on February 20th, 1978, Bob was arrested. Funny thing is, one of the agents flat out asked Bob, Are you D.B. Cooper, Mr. Rackstraw? What was Bob's answer immediately? To request a lawyer. Smart idea, anyway. Now, you're probably wondering, why did the FBI go to all this trouble to get him effectively extradited from Iran? Well, it isn't because of the possible murder of Philip Rackstraw. It was because of the capturing of the militant group and because of the mailing of bomb supplies. Mm. It had caused them to get a warrant to search Bob's warehouse he rented in Stockton, and oh boy, they found some stuff. They found 14 rifles, 150 pounds of Tovex dynamite, two 1,000-foot rolls of primer cord. Also, the unlicensed explosive had had the serial numbers illegally removed, and they were also getting him for the check-kiting charges. Uh, were any of these rifles able to be linked back to uh, the military base that was uh, we, hit? We believe so, but we're going to learn they won't talk about it. Okay. Because of his plea. We'll get okay, to that in a minute. Yeah. son of a bitch, once the lawyers get involved. Mm -hmm. Now, the other weird thing is that normally they wouldn't go to all this trouble to bring someone like Bob back to the U.S. for explosives and, and check-kiting warrants. But it seems like this is really confusing. It seems like at this point, the FBI had started to suspect that he was D.B. Cooper. That's why they wanted him back. Mm -hmm. Now you're asking, why do they think he's D.B. Cooper? Well, even in the book and the documentary, they will not release why the FBI thought he might have been D.B. Cooper. They will not talk about it. They will not release why he's a suspect. They apparently just wanted to get him. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially now that all the all of this time has passed, they should they should at least give a an idea of why they suspected him. The the other thing is like in the documentary, they basically seal the DB Cooper case and just kind of like put it away. Say we're not looking at this anymore. So. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they'll release their records eventually, but we don't know why they were looking at him. That's they must have known something that we don't know. If they know everything we know now, mm. then maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe. But we we don't know what they knew about him. I don't know. 
It's very strange. Now, ironically, around the same time on Philip's ranch, the search for Philip was about to have a break in the case. Now, on the ranch, there was a couple of sinkholes, and because it had just recently rained, it would cause the dirt to soften within the sinkhole, and this is where the PI asked Kelly Klein if he could take a look around the property. Now, when they searched around the area that Bingo was whining at, they found a depression in the earth from the sinkhole. When they started digging in that particular area, they had first uncovered what they thought was a horse ear. Hmm. But they quickly figured out it was actually a jacket. Uh. And when they finally unearthed even more, they found that Philip was laying on his stomach in his underwear, his legs were bent at the knees, and his hands were positioned behind his bullet-ridden head, which had been written or wrapped in a blood-soaked jacket. Now, Kelly Klein, after they uncovered the body, also found a pair of bloody pants at the bottom of a trash can near the shed where they found the body, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so, um, Philip, I don't think, just fell in this hole here. With a bunch of bullets in the back of his head? <laughs> no. So, I mean, it does it not sound to you like he was basically executed, like someone might have been like a pr- person, in cu- uh, like a prisoner or something in, Absolutely. in Vietnam? Absolutely. Or a black person in America? Yeah, it's just... Oof. Now, while still in custody in New York on February 28, 1978, detectives from California had arrived to extradite Bob on murder charges. Now, while in the courtroom to get the extradition approved, Bob instantly fell to the floor, acting like his legs no longer worked, claiming it was from a, quote, old back injury. Now, when Bob was forced to head to court in Stockton, California on March 6, 1978, he entered the courtroom, chained and shackled to a wheelchair, acting like he couldn't uh, couldn't walk, which shocked the judge, obviously. (laughs) Yes, yes. Bob's defense lawyer, Dennis Roberts, was known for being very, very good, but perhaps had a little Saul Goodman in him. Uh, a little slipping Jimmy. Apparently, Dennis Roberts had defended, um, what was his name, Cesar Chavez in California. Wow, nice. He did a lot of good work, but apparently he also helped Bob, so. Uh, you get, I mean, yeah. listen, the law is the law, right? <laughs> right. You can't really look at it as good guys and bad guys. They're mm. all arguing to make the law better. Yeah, basically. Now, that's, that's the lie they tell you anyway. <laughs> uh, his defense was that Robert Rackstraw was a Green Beret Vietnam veteran that had been paralyzed in action. He had earned 40 medals, which included five Purple Hearts, several Bronze Stars, and five campaign ribbons. Hmm. Uh, during the trial, Bob would tell the jury, I didn't kill my father, but I swear to God that I'll find out who did and I will bring him here to justice. <sighs> How much eye rolling transpired in that moment? Hopefully, hopefully, a lot of people broke out into like uh, embarrassed sweats. Oh, Jesus! Now, whether this garnered sympathy from the jury or simply the prosecution's evidence was flimsy. In July of 1978, Bob would be fully acquitted on the charge of murdering Philip Rackstraw. God damn it! The crazy thing is, for a long time, both Linda Lee and Mary were still uncertain if Bob had actually murdered Philip, but it certainly seems like he's basically the only prime suspect, right? The only suspect. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how anybody else could see otherwise, but I guess maybe they're a little more lenient on him. It sounded like they were lenient on him because they viewed him as a war hero who wouldn't do things like this. Yeah. So... 
Bob still had the other charges, but he also had his bail set at $60,000. Now, in typical Bob Rackstraw fashion, while in custody, he had managed to befriend a drug trafficker named Stan Hamilton, who introduced him to Vivian Jones, not her real name, Okay, who was Stan's partner at a Hollywood studio called Abracadabra Productions. <laughs> now, from what I've gathered, this was essentially set up to funnel money made via cocaine sales. Ah, some okay. Tommy Wiseau productions. <laughs> Is that how he got rich? That's uh, what they think. Is that he had to spend? He just had to spend all this all money. His money. I could. I could see it. He had to funnel cocaine money. Bob had managed to convince Vivian to cover his bail money, and I'm not exactly sure what he promised Vivian. But what we do know is Bob was going to be a consultant on a film Vivian had written called "Going Down." Oh, because it was about a pilot who had jumped. Out of a plane. Oh. Okay. Well, I thought it was about oral. <laughs> it was actually a softcore porn, yes. <laughs> he's jumping out of the plane to go blow somebody. That's what he's doing. Of the Italian stars, we of Rocky. Uh, one of the characters would literally be based off Rackstraw himself. Vivian later said, We were going to fly a plane into Lima, Peru, and shoot the picture just right there. With our own aircraft, Bob said he had friends in the CIA who could arrange for a refueling spot for us on an island. Uh, just the bullshit just piling up here, dude. Ooh, no, you don't, Bobby. <laughs> uh, Rackstraw would also repaint their plane and give it a new tail ID number. Apparently, this was going to be a shoot and drug run all in one. That is super illegal. You are not supposed <laughs> to change so? the just tail like... ID number on your plane. Do he does that all the time. Oh, my it's God. It's just what he does, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Bob Bob was also going to consult on a script called Delayed Reaction starring Robert Redford. Damn. The really crazy thing was that Vivian remembers before even taking off for Peru, Bob straight up asked Vivian if co-pilot, if the co-pilot was expendable. Oh. Oh, We why? don't know why. I don't know why. Maybe uh, he was looking in the future as like, is the co-pilot going to be in the Expendables? <laughs> but they didn't know what that meant at the time. Okay, so maybe that's Bob's script is Expendables. Yes. Um, I We don't really know why. I think it kind of meant like if they're getting busted, could he just kill them? Okay. Uh, that's what I think it meant, but this was just weeks after getting acquitted from Phillips' murder trial. Fuck. So. But unfortunately, none of the filming filming consultant plans are going to come to fruition because the judge handling the check kiting, forgery, and illegal possession of explosive charges decided he had had enough of Bob's bullshit. So on September 15th, 1978, he requested to actually look into Bob's full military record and found out that was all bullshit. And confiscated Bob's private collection of historic guns, which included 25 rifles and handguns. Hell yeah. And so on October 8th, 1978, Bob was back in court to make his plea on said charges. So you mean he didn't have 40 medals? No. Nope. <laughs> <sighs> Thankfully, it was a different judge handling that case than the murder case. So he's like, okay, let's look into who this guy actually is. And just... Try and think. Nobody can win 40 medals. Like, that's mm -hmm. so many medals. That's a lot of... I mean, the Distinguished Cross are honor like very high medals, but that wasn't enough for him. No. 
So on October 11th, 1978, three days later, okay, three days later, the Coast Guard received an SOS message coming from Bob's Cessna plane. <laughs> uh, he told him, The cockpit is filling with smoke and I'm going down. <laughs> mayday, mayday, I'm going to ditch. Uh, he reported his location as about 10 to 12 miles offshore between Monterey Bay and Santa Cruz. What were you doing out there? <laughs> the authorities didn't actually believe he died because after seven hours of searching, there was zero sign of the crash and they just assumed he had headed to Mexico. Mm. Now, it appears that Bob wasn't going to beat those charges, so he might as well try to fake his own death. <laughs> not only could he get out of those charges, hopefully, but he would also not have to fulfill his agreement with Vivian Jones, who literally had the planes ready to go to fucking Peru when he did this. <sighs> that fucking prick. <laughs> he just does not care about anyone uh, else's time. No, nobody but himself. That's it. Nobody but himself. Now, around New Year's of 1979, the court gave Linda Lee Bob's gun collection back. Apparently, Bob felt bad about ditching <laughs> Vivian on the $60,000 for bail money, so he allowed Vivian to take his entire gun collection to pay her back. Wow. He also gave his defense attorney, Dennis Roberts, a 1963 Strum Ruger Hawkeye 256 mag pistol and his corvette that'll cover it i think yeah yeah, yeah so <laughs> do you know that gun uh i don't but that's a i mean that's a pretty big goddamn caliber they made a big point about two of the guns in his collection were missing and have never been found i don't know if that means they could have been the murder weapon maybe or I maybe they know. were super valuable antique rifles it could be i don't know it, it sounded pretty cool he had a lot of cool shit in there Bob was hiding out with Mary Yontel in Orange County, California. He was pretending to be a man from Oklahoma, accent and all. Perfect. But on January 27, 1979, the ever-so-clever Bob Rackstraw messed up. He was attempting to duplicate his FAA license and medical records, but he left the work order in the photocopy shop. You dip shit. And it was a license issued to Rackstraw, and the owner had seen the paper about missing Robert Rackstraw. Mm. So the police were called, and two days later, the or Bob was once again arrested. Ugh. The arresting officer said, Rackstraw thought we were going to lock up his girlfriend, though we had no real reason to. We just played along. For the freedom of the girlfriend, he gave us information on the plane. He seemed to really care about that girl. He said he wanted to start a new life. He uh, he repainted the tail on him, by the way. Of course he did. <laughs> Fucking asshole. Uh, one of the officers who was guarding Rackstraw and spent several hours with him said, He characterized himself as a vegetarian, <laughs> said he hated killing people in Vietnam. He was oh, a free spirit, friendly, polite. Oh, my God. Yeah. He can just, like, con anybody. Uh, they all love him. Right. Dude, when they were... I didn't include it, but when they were transporting him from New York to um, uh, California, when he got back from Iran, the cops, like, loved him. Sure. I bet they were doing bits when yeah. they got off the plane. They yeah. said they loved him. Yeah. Now, this is going to get really crazy. Let's do it. He knew that the FBI was trying to going to try to attempt to tie him to the D.B. Cooper hijacking on top of the other charges, right? But during the four months that Bob was on the run, it is believed Bob 
which set up a very complicated plan to possibly get the chance of him being D.B. Cooper off of the radar. Okay, he's going to run some kind of fucking scheme. Yes. Now listen to this. I'm ready. In December of 1978, he took his semi-chopped green 900cc Kawasaki to visit his old pal, Dick Briggs. Dick Briggs, I'm going to eat a glass. (laughs) In Portland. Now, John Briggs had been a busy man over the years. While he was already basically a psychopath just from drinking, when he dove head head first into cocaine, it went way off the radar. The old uh, Bolivian marching powder. Yeah. From what the book connects between the two, it appears as if Briggs started off as a low-level cocaine dealer, Mm -hmm. and he had worked himself up to essentially the cocaine kingpin of Portland. A real rags-to-riches story. Yeah. Yeah, they made a big point where the cops knew who he was, they knew his cars, and apparently he was allowed to just, he could drive 100 miles down the fucking freeway, and they would not fuck with him. That's Wally. (laughs) The co-worker? That's Wally, yeah. He can do that? That He used to be able to do it, he was a coke dealer, yeah. Okay, well, I guess <laughs> him and Briggs have a lot in common. Maybe Wally's actually D.B. Cooper. That I would think, that be oh something. Oh my gosh, Cotton Hill is D.B. Cooper. <laughs> he would have been about 20 about at the time, so I think maybe. So, yeah. While it doesn't seem like Bob was directly connected to the drugs, we believe he would sell guns and possibly explosives to Briggs and Briggs' associates. Do you see the connection there? Absolutely, absolutely. So, Sorry, I was away from the mic. Oh, you're good, you're good. But the reason he is visiting his old buddy isn't involving drugs or guns or explosives. He needs his old buddy Briggs to do a little favor for him. And that was basically for Briggs to start telling everybody he knew that he was actually the real D.B. Cooper. <laughs> like literally everyone. And Briggs was psychotic <laughs> enough to do it. He even would head up to the 8th annual D.B. Cooper Day celebration in Woodland, Washington, and he would just walk around telling everybody, hey, I'm D.B. Cooper. Uh. Hi, I'm D.B. Cooper. Uh, When they asked Briggs why he did this, he said, these are my people, man. I got to let them know I'm D.B. Cooper. Uh. But Briggs also needed to do another thing for Bob. That being to possibly plant some of the D.B. Cooper ransom money in a particular spot. So it could be found by a little boy and his two hippie parents. This fucking, the fucking scavenger hunt of all scavenger hunts, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Now, most of what I'm, uh, most of what Briggs did at this point is being told from two of the drug running pals that were always around him. They would recall on February 7th, 1980, they were at a pack to the gills party in an apartment filled with what I would assume be those involved in the drug trade. A lot of talkative motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah. But there were two, quote, nervous looking hippies that stood out like a sore thumb. Briggs pointed at him and said, Before you guys get to Phoenix, they and their little boy are going to find some of my money over there on the Vancouver side of the river. Kind of weird why he would tell his two drug running buddies that that's going to happen, right? That seems uh, like a mistake on Briggs's part. Yeah. And once you know it, exactly four days later, on February 12th, 1980, eight-year-old Brian Ingram magically found $5,800 of the D.B. Cooper money while walking with his hippie parents, Dwayne and Patricia Ingram, on the north side of the Columbian River shore. Mm. What really 
makes you think is this site was 20 miles from where D.B. Cooper jumped out, right? Yes. I don't know how the money would get there. Yes. And the money was deteriorated, but it had kind of fresh rubber bands on it. Now, in the documentary, they say rubber bands in the elements will not last longer than six months. So how, dissolve. How is it that they have lasted more than, I think it's about nine years at this point, yep. okay? The other thing is that people who lived in that particular area where the money was found walk up and down that beach said there is no way in hell after that amount of time they would have not spotted the money. You know what I'm saying? They would have walked upon the money on the beach. Yeah, there's no question about it. Now, what I'm going to do is have Adam play the video here of them asking the hippie dad about this. The question is how that money get there. From the beginning, it really centers on who found it and what were the circumstances of the find. Tell me more. Here we are, we, and we had spoken extensively <laughs> prior to this, but I'm sitting there Watch showing him face Ron closely. Carlson. Let me get my glasses on here. Looks like you, Bo. <laughs> this is the, the, the individual with the information. His name is Ron. And he kept saying, you don't believe me, do you? And uh, he said, well, I'm going to tell you something that will prove to you who I am. He says, all right, you see that couple over there? We said, yeah. He says, they and their son, they were a hippie-looking couple, are the ones that are going to find my money. And we left probably Sunday morning, and we'd been up for three or four days. I drove as far as I could, which happened to be Reno. When we got there immediately, we all went to bed and shut all the blinds in the middle of the afternoon. And so I woke up around maybe 10 o'clock at night, and the TV was on, and all of a sudden this news alert come by. And it said that they had found, I believe it was like $6,000 or something of D.B. Cooper's money buried in the sand on the north side of the Columbia River, out of Vancouver, exactly where he said. And when they showed the people who found the money, it was that same couple that was at the party. Okay, you see that man's face. Oh. Why, why would you do that unless... The guy talking in the video is one of the drug runners that was at the party with Dick Briggs. Sure. So, I mean, his face (laughs) is like, oh, oh. Yeah. He'll never admit to it. And later in the documentary, that guy, the hippie guy, is like, they were bullying me. That's why I made a face like that. They were bullying me, and I was so mad I took my glasses off. Oh, and shook his head violently (laughs) for a second. Yeah. As if he had some sort of tick or spasm. (laughs) Yeah. I, I saw your eyes when you watch him. Like, like when someone does that, you're like, "Yeah, that looks a little guilty Ooh, there, buddy." That's fishy. Now Brian Ingram, the guy sitting there, was Hippie. the that no, no, he was the son who found it. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So the FBI allowed him to keep three thousand of the fifty eight hundred dollars, uh, and he would apparently slowly sell them over time. Hell yeah. The book the book says he sold three hundred of those dollars of the DB Cooper money for thirty seven thousand dollars. Awesome. Hell yeah. It's a Brian. piece of American history, so yeah. It the money is like super, super, super deteriorated when he finds it too, which is kinda cool. But uh anyway, with Bob in custody, he was facing additional charges for plane theft because the plane <laughs> He had crashed. Mm-hmm. Uh, he leased it, signed his sister, Linda Lee, as the co-signer, <sighs> and then he repainted it and everything. So he was facing an additional possibility of 10 years in the California penitentiary for the plane theft, even though Bob said it wouldn't have been a big deal because 
that plane company could just inca- uh, collect the insurance money, couldn't they? That's not really the fucking point, and it shouldn't really be the insurance company's problem. That and w- is this the Cessna that his old trusty Cessna that he had? No, 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 no. Okay, this is a completely fresh Cessna. That that one's gone. He pretended like he was borrowing or leasing it, I guess. Gotcha. And then had Linda Lee su- it. co-sign it. Yeah, she didn't know that, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> On February 6th, 1979, Bob contacted the Stockton Record Stockton <laughs> Record for an interview. Naturally, the paper was trying to coax him into admitting that he was D.B. Cooper, but Bob just claimed uh, he was a poor former Vietnam vet mm-hmm. who was now a political prisoner. Mm-hmm. The paper wrote this. He identifies with the spirit of D.B. Cooper, a person he says challenged the legal system and beat it. I think I stand for the American people. I really do. This guy makes me eye roll so much. He's a cringe lord. Uh, Ironically, Bob also made a little request prior to the interview, and that was for Raleigh filter tips. Same cigarettes D.B. Cooper smoked, right? On March 7th, 1979, Rockshaw had gotten into contact with a local TV station, KNBC. This is all while he's in jail, by the way. Uh, now, to get their attention at first, he was openly claiming that he was D.B. Cooper. Mm. Naturally, the station then wanted to do an interview with him. But after the editor got into contact with an FBI agent named Roger Frenchie. <laughs> I don't even know how to say his last name. I think that's probably why they call him Frenchie. <laughs> La, jo- La-, La Jeunesse. La Jeunesse. Then, perfect. Uh, he told him, This guy is a gunman. He's not D.B. Cooper. You know, you're off on the wrong trail again. Ooh. Now, this is the kind of statement that the FBI will always stick with from the time being. They would also tell everyone that Rockshaw was too young to have committed the hijacking. He was 28 at the time, oh, by the way. He was only 28 in a Vietnam vet. Yeah. Uh, and because he had lied about his military career, he's probably lying about de- being D.B. Cooper. And because of the money found, they thought D.B. Cooper has to be dead. What does Rackstraw have on the U.S. government? I don't know. What, I don't know. What does he have? What did he do in Vietnam? Actually, that's the weird thing. He seems to know a lot about what the CIA knew, and and I don't know. He seems to be able to fucking get away with goddamn everything. Anything. Everything. Even still, KNBC made an attempt to chat with Robert Rackstraw, and wouldn't you believe it? Bob Rackstraw just skated around any questions about being D.B. Cooper, or he simply said, you know, I can't talk about that. Uh, You know, the whole reason why they are still trying to get someone for D.B. Cooper is because they set uh, is the John Doe law or something where they extended the statute of limitations on the plane hijacking so they can charge anybody at any time. Hmm. There is no statute of limitations oh, on it. Oh, my God. Yeah. It, Open-ended. Yeah. Either way, after his little antics with the media on May 19, 1979, Bob Rackstraw would be found guilty of five counts of grand theft and issuing bad checks. Bob was going to receive three years in prison. During sentencing, apparently Bob yelled at D.A. Clark Suriz. Suriz had his way. I'm going to prison for three years. My life is ruined. My family is ruined. <laughs> During his appeal, he described Suriz as... 
a mentally deranged psychopathic communist liar, as well as a rampant criminal traveling under the title Deputy District Attorney. <sighs> I feel like I hear this all the time currently. From a particular sect of people. Oh. Anyway. Oh, oh. oh. <laughs> uh, after this, Bob would plead no contest in the possession of illegal explosives, stealing a plane, and additional writing bad check charges, which would get him an additional two years, but would run concurrently to his three years he was already serving. Boo! And this is why, because he pleaded no contest, they couldn't release anything about the explosives thefts or the armory bombing. He has something on the government. You think so? He has to. Was the government just nicer on people during this time? Maybe. Maybe they were nicer to b- dynamite thieves and plane <laughs> thieves at the time. And the other thing is, after his sentencing, he would tell the future reporters trying to get something out of him that he just pretended to be D.B. Cooper and just was telling the other papers what they wanted to hear. Sure. Could be. He is a con man sure. after all. Yeah. Now, eventually, Bob Rackstraw would be be paroled on August 19th, 1980 from California Folsom State Prison. That's a Johnny Cash's album there. Bet your ass. After serving just a little more than a year. Did you find one of those in your collection? I There's like three of them in there. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was officially cleared as, DB, as a D.B. Cooper suspect and paroled quietly under the supervision of, a, of his family in Columbus, Ohio. What is really interesting is in the early morning of December 12th, 1980, keep in mind he's already out. Okay. Dick Briggs died in a mysterious one-car accident on an isolated road. Not only did uh, Briggs' friend Jim Hollingsworth, who was with him that day until 4 in the morning drinking, also his girlfriend at the time both said Dick's believed that someone was after him and he was going to be murdered. <laughs> The official crash <laughs> logs show Dick was drunk. Okay, well, that's not surprising, right? He was an no. angry alcoholic with cocaine I'm sh- problem. I'm sure he was on coke, too. Yeah. His car had skidded 99 feet. He went airborne over the ditch, smashed into a parked car on his driveway, and he was found underneath the car impaled on a jagged door mirror. Holy Fuck. Oh, what a bad way to go. Can you what imagine? What a bad way to go. Can you imagine going to get your paper the next morning <laughs> and this guy's impaled and his car is in your <sighs> car in your driveway? Oh, man. But the little conspiracy the book weaves is that could it be possible that Briggs was being offered immunity by the feds for offering up who D.B. Cooper was and someone decided to silence him? It kind of makes you wonder because Rackstraw was out on bail, and he was really good friends with Briggs, mm-hmm. but he refused to show up at his funeral. Mm. But I could also see, because he was the drug kingpin of Portland, he probably had plenty of enemies, I would imagine. I'd say there's more than one person that wanted to cut his brake lines or something. <laughs> yeah. it, it, they made it sound like from the crash, it appears like someone was chasing him, and he drove really fast and then drove off the road. Okay, so, hey, who definitely knows? possible who knows? as well. About 16 months after Bob was paroled, he married his fourth fourth wife, a wealthy 33-year-old Dorothy L. Dottie Bush Clare. Bob would call his ex-wife, Gail Marks, and tell her, I finally married someone rich. <laughs> his new wife was a state-certified masonry inspector. Whoa. Shout out John <laughs> On August 3rd, 1982, Bob created another company called 
California Aviation Transportation System, or CATS. Hey, I love it. It's great. In Santa Monica, but within two years, CATS would fail because of uh, failed back taxes owed to the state. And also, the Broadway play sued them. (laughs) On April 20th, 1983, Bob was hit by another driver, which would severely break his leg. Afterwards, Bob would walk with a noticeable limp the rest of his life. In 1991, Bob Rackstraw would earn a Bachelor of Science in Applied Economics from the University of San Francisco. Wow. At the age of 47, Bob started to teach contract law and mediation for the University of California, Riverside. Wow. Bob then enrolled at Northwestern California University School of Law, which was the very first online college in the state, 1992. In 1993, he earned a Juris Doctorate, followed by a LLM, Mater of Laws. in oh, the Mater? I guess. <laughs> in the field of international law and economics. Now, as I mentioned, Linda Lee wasn't exactly sure if she believed that Bob had killed her father or not. But sometime in 1995, something changed her mind, she said. I remember in the 90s when I was watching the O.J. Simpson trial... Everything that had gone on, you know, the chase of the Bronco and the way that O.J. acted. When he was saying, I'm going to catch the murderer, I'll catch Nicole's murderer, and just things he said and did, I pretty well figured out that man was guilty. And I thought, that's a guilty man, and he sounds exactly like Bob sounded during the trial. I guess, thanks, O.J.? I guess it helps to not be related. (laughs) And you can see the bullshit. Apparently, after this, Linda Lee would never talk to her brother again. Wow. And unfortunately, Linda Lee would pass away during uh, due to recurrent cancer sometime in 2013, just four weeks after she had given her interviews for the book. So, R.I.P. Yeah. Sorry, Linda. Uh, Sorry about your credit history as well. Thanks to fucking Bob. <laughs> your brother. Yeah. On October 19, 1997, college instructor Bob Rackstraw was pulled over under suspicion of drunk driving or <laughs> under the influence of drugs, saying as Bob's old habits died hard, he resisted arrest and gave them a fake ID. <laughs> Bob, you're 50-something, dude. <laughs> uh, because of that, in 1999, the FAA pulled uh, his flying license because he failed to mention that little DUI arrest. That's pretty important, I think, yeah. for the plane authorities. But Bob, he taught arbitration for over 10 years, so oh, yeah. I guess he changed his life a little bit. Yeah. Finally, in 2012, the author Tim Colbert and a man named Jim Forbes started to try to get into contact with Robert Rackstraw for a sit-down interview as you can imagine, Bob wasn't going to admit uh, anything and just keeps jerking their change. But they would do a stakeout of his condo in Bunker Hill, which is in San Diego's Coronado Bay. Mm. Very rich. Mm-hmm. Bob was now running a little boat shop called Coronado Precision Marine. They also found out he had his own ocean cruising boat parked in- at the Navy Yachts Club. His boat's name was... Poverty sucks. <laughs> So, this is essentially what they did. They talked about a lot about this in the documentary. They stormed his store, trying to get him to admit he was uh, D.B. Cooper. They offered him $20,000 for a story, but Bob was resilient. They kept nagging him and nagging him. I don't think that was going to work anyway. Yeah. 
Uh, as Bob was driving off at one point, he claimed that he can't even remember any of it anyway. <laughs> so there's that. Now, finally, at the age of 75, on June 9th, 2019, Robert Wesley Rackstraw would die from a long-standing Just heart condition. Just over a year ago. Yeah. Long-standing heart ago. condition. Not long ago. So he lived a pretty wild fucking life, didn't he? Uh, he was a wild and crazy kid, yeah. I would say. It took him to the age of, what, 47 to finally grow up? <laughs> and he's an asshole, and he's a murderer, and all, he's a con man. He is a con, 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 con man. He goes on the he goes on Rushmore. Oh, absolutely. He goes on Rushmore. He got away with being D.B. Cooper his entire fucking life. The, I want to talk about two final things. So the documentary kind of changed my mind a little bit on Bob. I still think he's the prime suspect for being D.B. Cooper, but the interesting thing is they had Tina Mucklow and uh, co-pilot Bill Radizak on uh-huh. there, and when they showed him them pictures of Bob Rackstraw, especially around the time, neither of them said that was D.B. Cooper. But then again, they are probably like 60 to 70 at the time of asking him, so who really knows? Was he too... Yeah, I mean, honestly, they probably saw the sketch so yeah. much and were like, yeah, that's yeah. that's definitely the That guy. was their biggest thing. They were so sick of being interviewed about it that they had to like pry them to do an interview for uh, the people researching about Bob, Bob Rackstraw. You remember Bill, Mitch- or, yeah, Bill Mitchell, the guy who was jealous of... Uh, D.B. Cooper getting all Tina Mucklow's attention. Yep. Yes. He's... That fucking cuck. <laughs> so when they showed him a picture of six people, he immediately pointed to Bob Rackstraw, which was interesting. But he said, this is uh, McCoy, right? Which is the other main suspect in the hijacking. Right, right. He got busted. Very interesting. Wow. The very last thing I'm going to mention is there is a person named Barb Dayton. Okay. They mention her in the documentary. Now... She had a sexual reassignment surgery in 1977. First one at Oregon, by the way. Wow. Uh, and their friends said she kept talking about doing secret missions of Vietnam for the Mercantile Marines. She mentioned that she was D.B. Cooper. She used to get in fights all the time and all of this before when she was a man or whatever. Um, and after she passed away, they thought she was bullshitting, right? They looked into everything she said. All of it was true outside of the D.B. Cooper thing, obviously. So maybe this person could have been D.B. Cooper. She she actually did go on secret missions also? Oh, yes. Yes, like dangerous ones, too. So uh, he's, I don't know. I thought that was an interesting suspect huh. as well. So Yeah, and I would because, like to see if there was any more information on her. Yeah, and because, you know, she obviously had a uh, sexual reassignment surgery, you wouldn't even recognize her now Yeah, definitely. from when she was a man. And she, the timeline kind of adds up. So, but unfortunately, I don't think you're going to ever find anything about that. So, you know what I thought of when you said uh, when she was a man? Mm. Uh, you look like a man. <laughs> I thought you were going to say... Uh, she's the man starring, I can't remember her name. Steve the, Harvey. No, she went crazy. Um, Linda. Li, uh, Bynes. Amanda Bynes. Amanda Bynes. Gotcha, gotcha, she gotcha, was the, gotcha. She was the man there. But yeah, yeah. yeah uh, what do you think? Last thoughts. Do you think Bob is probably D.B. Cooper? I think Bob Rackstraw is 97% D.B. Cooper. Yeah. He, I don't know. There's just too many, too many correlations. Too many synchronicities, bro. They, they showed... The people of Astoria, a picture of Rackstraw being Norman DeWinter, and they just laughed and like, yeah, 
That's him. There he that is. is him. There's that our is roving him. baron. <laughs> yeah. So there it is. If you don't think he's D.B. Cooper, this guy had a crazy fucking life. If you don't think he's D.B. Cooper, that's fine. Yes, we we covered this man's life, mm. and that was well worth an episode. <laughs> yeah. All, oh, yeah. Absolutely. But whoever you think it is, why don't you let us know at bumblebuttpodcast at gmail.com. What's that, Adam? Bubblebuttpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach us exactly right there by going to our website at bubblebuttpodcast.com, filling out the Ask Us a Question field, and it will come right to our email, and we'll be able to answer it immediately. Absolutely. Use our store. Use our fucking store, mm. buy a shirt. Also, mm. go to Patreon, patreon.com slash podcast. We are rapidly closing in on the deadline for getting your missing Jordan prints, so please, please get in at the Bowling for Satan tier above. And uh, that'll be awesome. I think we have a few new Patreons we'd like to welcome if you if you have them handy. Yes, thank you very much to Demetrius Johnson for joining our Patreon. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Demetrius. You're the beast. You're the best. And now it's time for the most important part of the show, which is the Spotify follow button. Hell Bop yes. that motherfucker. Make sure you do it. Fifty uh, something percent this time. Really? 50-something percent for uh, wow. uh, Spotify Revolution. Apple is down to 26%. But I would like to, I would like, if you're still on that nasty old Apple, mm-hmm. I'd like you to go on there and leave us a five-star review, written preferably if you could. Do you, you have any from our all-stars <sighs> here in the States? Uh, we don't have any written, but we did, I, I'm going to level with you adam i swear i checked this this morning and i just opened it just now and there's three new ones three new five star non-written what's so. that leave us what's that put 158 us yep that's what i saw too I, we definitely got three and one of them is written ah. and it is from canada i Hell saw yeah. this thanks to chartable thank goodness for that site a little <laughs> bit but this says just found these guys i just started and i'm starting from episode one right off the bat these guys are hilarious and human they tell stories with a good eye for the funny and absurd, as well as expressing proper disgust for the details that can be a little hard to take. I also really appreciate how they take the time to fully acknowledge what might be an embellished part of the story, always carefully considering what they know for sure and what they are willing to believe. That is from Michael J. Clark on Apple Podcast Canada. Thank you so much. I, I, that I, You know what hit me really hard is us acknowledging the parts that might be bullshit. It's I a love great that. thing. Love it's that. a great thing. Otherwise, we're just presenting a book report for the yeah. most part. Yeah. You've got you've got you've got to question the sources. You gotta you have a stance. Have to. You have you to. You have to, absolutely. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, that's uh I mean, that's everything that I've got. Do you have any other pressing business on the uh agenda? Uh not outside of uh keep keep update or I should say you should be waiting out for the announcement when the shirt drops. I know Adam I showed him. They're awesome. I love it. And yeah. guess what? They're at the t-shirt shop, or the design they, is at the t-shirt shop, yeah. so we are, as soon as they are ready, we'll have them up there. We're at the mercy of the, uh, what, Turk, what do they call that? Turk, it starts with a T. How do you say it? Turkmenistan. No, is it Mercantile Boys? No, Turkin, I'd never mind. Let's move on. The Haberdashery Boys? Don't they have a specific name for people who make clothing? So they're like mercantile boys or like, I thought it was something with a T. Te- textile boys. Textiles. There we go. Yeah. Textile boys. We're at the mercy of the textile boys, but uh, usually they only take a week and I put it in on Wednesday, so we should be good. All right. Real quick question. Uh, lightning round question. I'm going to tell you one question. Are you ready? This yes. is from an email that I received from Ooh, Elizabeth Washington. Yes. Are you hell ready? Yes. I'm ready. 
if a person is born blind, what are their dreams like? I think that your imagination might just take over at that point or from the things you feel. If you close your eyes and you feel things, you can kind of make the shape in your head, right? But what if you have no reference for that shape? I I don't know. (laughs) I would assume your imagination just takes over at that point because how many things have you thought of that don't actually exist? Oh, several. And how many things have I thought of just from hearing that I thought I actually thought? Mm. That's happened to me before. One time I was asleep and uh, my parents' alarm was going off and it was Bohemian Rhapsody on KQ. (laughs) And I thought in my sleep addled phase, I thought I wrote that song. See, the... Dude, the brain is a wild thing. It It'll can do, do a lot of wild things. I would imagine a blind person can feel the shapes, but they cannot maybe understand colors. Yeah. Maybe they dream in black and white. Yeah. Turner classic movie style. Do <laughs> robots dream of electric sheep? Who knows? I don't know. I, I fell asleep to Age of Ultron, so maybe. <laughs> I see Those movies disgust. are so boring. I see the disgust. All right. Well, that's going to do it for all of us here at the Bumble Bob Podcast. My name has been Adam. That has been Cody. Thank you for a wonderful series, Cody. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Well, everybody, that's, uh, yeah, I already said that. So have a nice weekend, unless it's Tuesday. How's it about?